Good morning slash afternoon. It's so good to see you here today. My name is Crystal and I'm one of the teaching pastors. If you are visiting here because of the baby dedication or if it's your first time, we welcome you. Um, we're people that love to have fun and we enjoy the freedom of God's spirit in our lives. So welcome. This month is about what? God has more for us. Pastor Peter did an incredible job the last two weeks of breaking down the words, God has more for us, and he just left a little bit for us to preach on the rest of the month, so we'll take it. But I want to talk about um, having more strength when we are tested. And whenever there's an audience this size, you know that there are people here that are trying to feed their families, and there are people here that are trying to stay married. There are people here that are looking for a spouse. There are people here that are trying to finish school, trying to get well in their bodies. And this, I want this to be a, a, a word of encouragement for you this morning and to, to see if these things are something that's troubling you in your life. So let's get started. We're talking about Daniel. He is my go-to guy when I think about um, obstacles or adversity. And I want to see what he did when he was challenged so that we can get more from God, so that we can have more for God. So let's just jump right into it. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now this first verse is told from a historical point of view, which means it answers the question, who uh, when, where, those types of things. But the second verse changes a little bit. It says, the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. And this verse is spoken from a theological point of view because it tells us why those things happened. And if you know your history, you know that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. It's also a fulfillment of God who both blesses and judges, and they are walking out a judgment during this time in Israel's history. The king then ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, good-looking young men. So I'm sure most of y'all would have been taken away if you had been alive in that time. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge, have good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Now, what I'd like us to notice is the strategy. This, this heathen king, King Nebuchadnezzar, was... A brilliant strategist. And I think there is something eerily familiar about his plan to indoctrinate these uh, young men of royal family. We see that his plan from these two verses are to, to capture them, to take them away from Jerusalem, away from their home, away from their support system, immerse them in the Babylonian culture, train them and teach them, give them new names. He had a whole plan for them. And so I want to look at the strategy that he used, the, the scheme against these young men, because I think that you will find some of the 
things are still plaguing us today. So we're going to start with the first one. And that was his strategy to claim these young men for Babylon. And this is in two parts, this strategy to claim someone. The first part is to isolate them. Now, the king could have left these men back in Jerusalem because when they were overrun, there were people still left alive when they went back to Babylon. But he took those men from Jerusalem, from their family, from their Hebrew culture, where they heard the Torah read every day, where they had a support system, where their parents were. He took them from that and immersed them into the culture in Babylon. And there was a reason why he did that. Isolation has consequences. There are physical emotional and mental effects when we are isolated for long periods of time. I know it's, it's, if you're an introvert, it's easy to go, well, you know, people drain me and I, I need my space. And, and I'm not talking about that. We all, we all need our space, especially those of us who are married. We need a little space to kind of give grace to the other spouse. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking when we purposely isolate ourselves from fellowship Isolate ourselves from where we know people would want to pray for us and believe with us and stand beside us. When we isolate ourselves, it, it, it causes emotional distress. We don't even realize it, but it's a very real thing. The Bible says if one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. We know that God said after he created Adam... I know he spoke this to Adam, but it's for all of us. It said, it's not good for this man, for people to be alone. It's not good. We need each other. We are made for community. We are made for families. We are, are made to connect with one another. And so the first part of the strategy was to isolate Daniel, get him away from the, from the, the foundation and from the structure that God had in place for him. Does anybody, can anyone tell me what this movie is from, this scene is from? Wilson. This is an old movie, I realize that. Some of you that are younger might not have seen it. But if you recall, Tom Hanks was stranded on this island, and after, I don't even remember, was it months that he was on that island? I, I've, I've forgotten the details. It is so good to see you, Miss Maria. God bless you. Hallelujah. The Lord heals he heals today. Is he a healing God? He's a healing God. So good to see you. Wilson. And, and this speaks to the point I'm making here about isolation. He was so desperate for someone to talk to, someone that he could talk with. And he, if I recall correctly, he was even imagining him talking back that he created this, this faux person. Because it's important that we stay together, that we stay in community, that we stay in fellowship. And so the first part of that scheme to claim Daniel, to train his mind and to turn his heart away from Jerusalem was to isolate him. The second part was to indoctrinate. Now, um, there was a three-year indoctrination period for Daniel. And let's read together this, this, this one thing I want to say. Let's read it together, please. We don't see things. We see things as that king 
was very shrewd. And he understood that not only did, did he want Daniel and the three friends to learn about the culture of Babylon, he wanted them to start learning how to think like a Babylonian. How to think, because he knows, he knew that the way that those men thought, the way that they, they thought about the world was the way that they would see. The king understood that what we, we see, what we are prepared to see. And so he took these young men into a three-year period where he taught them how to see and what to think about what they saw. And I just want to take a moment and say that one of my core beliefs, along with my husband, is that as parents, it is our responsibility to train our children how to see, to lay a foundation, a biblical worldview that not only teaches them how to see, but what to do with what, to, what they see, how to understand how things fit together in a biblical worldview. Because what we know in our mind, the knowledge that we know, and the things that we experience are the lens that we see life. This expression really is true. We very rarely see things the way they are. We see things through the lens of what we've experienced, what's happened to us, what we have prejudged about a situation. We see something the way we are. And so the king's strategy was to influence not just the facts that these young men were learning, but the way that they think the way that they view the world. I'm excited that um, some, of the, some of our youth are going to spend a couple days sitting at the feet of Ravi Zacharias. They're going to learn things about apologetics and about uh, standing for Christ in a hostile environment, which is what college campuses are now. And they're going to learn, they're going to be trained, and they're going to look at how to see the world with a biblical worldview. I love that. I had taken my team of 12, we meet on Tuesday mornings, and I took them out the back door of one of the nurseries, and I said, okay, ladies, just, just, just look around. I didn't ask them any questions. I said, I just, we all stood together, so we were all in the same place. There wasn't anyone around the corner. We were all seeing the same thing. So just look for like five minutes, and just, just look. So when the time was up, we, we came inside. And I said, now, now, now tell me, what did you see? And each one of them, it was, it was truly remarkable. Each one of them saw, noticed different things. Of course, we all saw the sky and we all saw the grass. But they all noticed different details. And I, and I understood from listening to what they noticed that the things that they noticed correlated with their gifting, with their personality. It was what things that they had experienced were things that they noticed in detail when we were all looking. So we see things truly the way that we are. So uh, under this first idea of claiming them, isolate them, indoctrinate them. The second thing that I noticed that he did was to try to tame them. And he did that 
through trying to get them to compromise. Now, compromise today is, is a fairly nice word. You know, you compromise with your spouse, try to get along. You compromise on the team at work. You compromise in church. So we're not talking about doing something wrong. We're talking, here we're talking about having the truth that we believe in be eroded from our feet. Just ever so slightly, um, I want you to think for a moment about yourself, and we won't answer these questions out loud, and neither will I. But I want you to think about the things that you look at now. Would you have looked at the things that you viewed now 10 years ago? Now, you might say, well, these shows weren't on 10 years ago. Well, that proves my point, but are you doing things today that you wouldn't have thought of as maybe a new Christian or as someone who's been walking with the Lord for a while? The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and there they would be enter the royal service. But Daniel was determined. I like that it's past tense. Had determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. So the first real chance that Daniel had to assert himself, he took it. Now, it, 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 the scripture goes on to say that the tone was reverential. He, was, um, he wasn't rude or, or anything like that. But the point is he had already made a decision about how he was going to act and behave in this hostile and foreign and heathen land. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? You're getting the king's food, getting the good wine. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't say that the king tried to have a theological debate about their gods versus the one God. He didn't try to do that. He didn't try to say, well, you know, the Torah, that's, that's written by. No, he was trying to make them feel welcome. He was trying to make them feel like they belong. Slowly, slowly. Trying to change their heart to the thing, the finest things that they had to offer. The reason Daniel decided that he was not going to defile himself is because that went against the laws of, of Israel. That went against what they were allowed to eat, the dietary laws. It also went against the laws because that food had already been dedicated to idols and that was against Hebrew law. And Daniel had already decided, already made up his mind, he wasn't going to do it. New Testament says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing what? The way you think. The way you think. The way you think affects the way you behave. The way you think affects the choices that you make. Um, there's a... Maybe I shouldn't say that in this service. Okay, but, but I think I'm going to. The culture in Babylon was one of, you know, it's complicated. 
Have you ever talked with someone and you're, you're speaking truth to them? And you can see the, the, the wheels turning in their mind and you get the, it's complicated. You know, this situation is really different. This situation is unique. I know the Bible says this is clearly something, but this is, it, it's complicated. Has anybody ever had people say that to you? Raise your hand. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's complicated. When Pastor Mark and I were single, we've been married 40, I think I figured it was 42 years. 42 years. That's a long time by anybody's rules, ruler, right? I mean, it really is. It doesn't feel like it. It feels like 20 maybe. But it's been so long that when we were dating, and I, I told the first service I wasn't going to tell you all, but I'm going to. I want you all to get the full effect that when I was dating, and I didn't date a whole lot, I will be honest, I, I didn't have a lot of dates. I was really a wallflower and a bookworm, and it's just a late bloomer. I'll call myself a late bloomer. But my father, before I would go out on dates, gave me a dime. That's how much a phone call at a public phone booth cost a dime. I know. Does anybody, am I like the oldest dinosaur here? Does anybody remember phone calls? Thank you, brother. Come let me kiss you. Okay, good. Okay, good. I won't, I, I can't kiss all of you, so we'll save it. A dime. He gave me a dime and because, and that dime meant if you get in any trouble, if you, if you just don't feel good, if you don't like the way he's blinking, you call me and I'm coming to pick you up. And I knew that. And I had core beliefs. Of course, we both were believers when we married. He had core beliefs. But once we married, we predetermined, we decided as a couple, before we had children, before all that stuff happened, the things that were core beliefs to us. Now, you don't want the core beliefs to be too detailed because then it's, like, cumbersome. So we had a few. Of course, things like Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God. There's no other way. There's no other plan. We agree that the Bible is, is absolute truth. And we could not come into agreement about things. The Bible was the thing that guided us. We, our core belief was that we would be married as long as we were alive. As long as we were living, we would be married. And there have been, like it says in like Joseph's story, there have been very a lot of lean years and there have been some fat years. And that represents good, happy years and sad years. So it's not like it's been a picnic and we have frolicked through meadows all 40 years. It's not like that. But the, the core belief that we decided before, we're going to stay married for life. Now, if the Lord takes him home, the deal's off. If the Lord takes me home, you guys have to keep an eye on it for me. <laughs> because I've got to make sure those core beliefs are still in place. But core beliefs. When it came to our children, those imaginary children that we didn't have, that we would have no problems with, we decided, you know what? They're dedicated to God first. They really are. And so if they decide they're going to lead worship instead of, you know, go be an architect or whatever, it's up to, it's up, that's between him and God. That's between him and God. 
first and us second. We decided one of our core beliefs, which might seem strange, but we insisted that our children love and help each other. Love and help each other. That was a core belief. That wasn't something like, okay, now you guys be nice to each other. No, the atmosphere of our home was you love each other and you support each other and help each other. So those are just things you can't wait until you're in the fight to go, what were the rules again? I can't remember. Am I allowed to? You have to decide before. And so Daniel had decided that he wasn't going to, this, this is where he drew the line in the sand and he made a statement to the man. And you can read the rest of the chapter later because we certainly don't have time right now. All right, last thing, I'm going to spend a few moments on this. So, isolation, indoctrination, compromise. The last one is name them. And I'm adding confusion to his strategy to change first the mind and then the heart of Daniel. And he did that by giving them a, a new name, by giving him a new name. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen. They were all from the tribe of Judah. That's the, the, the tribe where the kings came from. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. And I'm just giving Daniel's because you'll have to read the rest at home. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. How would you like to be stuck with that, with that name? The strategy here was to confuse Daniel's identity that had been given to him by God. To confuse his identity, to shake up, to, to disturb the identity that he had been raised with as a Hebrew boy. Now, Daniel's name means God, the omnipotent, the almighty. God is my judge. The chief of staff changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means, lady, protect your sovereign. Part of what he wanted to do to confuse Daniel and to change his identity was to change the gender that he was called. So instead of saying, Daniel, Daniel, God is my judge, now they're saying, lady, hey, lady, to confuse and I think that same tactic is working today. The identity that people don't know. They don't know what God says about them as believers. They don't know, they don't understand that God loves them. God has a purpose for them. That every cell in their body is screaming the purpose that God has designed for them. Male, female. There's a book, um, a, a classic called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, most of you have heard about it or read it. It was written by a psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl. And he tells of an incredible story of his life where he was um, captured by the Nazis. He was herded with thousands of others in, in cars and taken, railroad cars and taken to, of course, what we now know were death camps. Um, he was stripped. All his possessions were taken. And one of the things they did to complete the dehumanization of these prisoners was this. They stripped him of his name and said, you will not hear the name Victor 
you will not hear the name Frankel. You will, from now on, be known as 119-104. 119-104. Evil regimes dehumanize people. Dehumanize. And why are evil regimes evil? Because of sin. Sin is evil. That's a great statement. But your enemy, Satan, looks at you. If you are a child of God, and even if you're not, you're still made in God's image. He looks at you. He sees God's image, and he hates you. He hates you because you are made, as God said, to look like God. You look like you are made in his image, and he hates that. So anything he can do to confuse your identity, to shake you up from your core, he will try. I would like to ask this for the women. This might be true of men too. Forgive me for just addressing the women now. But I'd like to, don't raise your hand, just, this is just a question to answer between you and the Lord. How many women have felt like a number with men? Just felt like a number. It was just a notch. It, it's dehumanizing. It's, it's, it's like, and, and now you're wondering, is that all I am? Is that all I will ever be to a man? Sin takes what God has made precious and unique about you and tries to deface God's image in you. It could be done through an act of violence, through rape, through careless words, through anger or hatred. And the enemy would like to tell you Ladies, that that's your new identity. That's who you are. Because he doesn't like the fact that God has an identity for you. God has a purpose for you. And he will try whatever he can to confuse you, to forget that as a child of God, you have a purpose. You have an identity. The enemy cannot take that away from you, but he can make you believe something different. That one act that happened to you, that was forced upon you, is not your identity. God says that you are claimed. He's claimed you. He says that you are whole in Christ. He says that you are unique. You're special. You have your own fingerprint. Nothing, no one else looks like you. You are desired by God. So much that he sent his son to die. And you are lovable. He loves you. But the enemy will take that thing that happened, that circumstance that happened, that word that was sproken, that that that. That weekend at the college, that, that summer in middle school, that abortion, that child that you put up for adoption, that man that you let stay in your home that treated you like 
trash. He wants you to think that is who you are, that you're not loved, that you're discarded. You're not claimed, you're discarded. He wants you to think that you're broken and you can't be fixed. He wants you to think that there's nothing special about you. You're just like every other woman to that person. You're just like every other woman. He wants you to believe that you're not unique, that you're not special. He wants you to believe you are unwanted by God because of what happened to you, because of a choice you made that you are sorry for and you repented of. He wants you to believe God no longer wants you, but that's not true. God loves you, and he has an identity for you, and please don't settle for something else. A comedian says, W.C. Field, he's an old comedian. Most of you won't know who he is, but he says, it ain't what they call you, it's what you answer to. What are you answering to? What are you calling yourself? What are you listening to? Today, people have a saying, live your own truth. Live your own truth. Sounds really nice, doesn't it? Can't we all just live our own truth? What if you, just think for a moment, what if you lived your own truth for a week? What would your own truth even be? That it's okay to take an extra, that it's okay to, living your own truth will destroy your family. Living your own truth isn't even real. It's not even possible because there's only so far that you can do that you can go to change your identity. Every cell in your body screams the identity that God gave you. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to close with this. The thing about taking a false identity and, and starting to live a false identity and not the one that God has said that you are, not a beloved child, not that you are written on the palm of his hand. Taking any other identity now means that you have given someone else the permission to set the standard for your life. If your identity is, I'm a fashionista, I'm a, I'm a clothes horse, I'm, I'm, I've got every, all these followers on Instagram. Well, if you, if you love fashion, then you have to keep it up. If you're defined by clothes, you have to dress up. If you're defined by your status, well, I'm this, I'm that, I'm Dr. So-and-so, I'm Mr. So-and-so, you have to measure up. If you're defined by beauty, if that is your quintessential definition of who you are, is beauty. As the years go on, you have to tighten up. <laughs> you have to tighten up. There's always someone else. Someone else that will measure you if your identity isn't anything other than who Christ said that you are. So I'd like you to close your eyes for a moment. Oh, before we do that, sorry. Do one more thing. We've got the time. I'd like the ladies to say this first line with me. Hold fast your identity in God. Again, because I don't think you meant it. Hold fast your identity in God. We first have to know, what am I, is, am I putting, 
Am I, am I letting someone else define me? Am I letting something else define me? What, is, what do you say about me in your word? For the men, if the men will say the next thing with me. Settle your... Guys, if I could tell you one thing as a woman to a man... We want to know that you have convictions. We want to know that there's a line that you will not cross so that we can feel safe. We want to know that you have convictions and that you have decided them and you are living your life by them like Daniel did. We want to know that. that we, before we want to make a home with you, we want to know what do you believe? Mm. Understand you'll be tested. Testing is grounds for promotion. It is. Now, I'll ask you please to close your eyes. I'm going to keep my eyes open. And what I want to do is if uh, my eyes are open, yours are closed. I, if this is you, something that you're struggling with or something that the Holy Spirit has pointed out, I'd like you to raise your hand as I ask the questions because we are going to be praying for you this week. Me, my team, we're going to be praying for you. I'm going to give the list to the healing team. They're going to be praying for you. Do you, are you someone that isolates yourself? Once, you, once you've refilled and, and, and you've, you know, had a day or two to refill if you're an introvert. Or, but do you find yourself, man, I need to call somebody. I need someone to pray. Think, no, no, I'm going to just do it myself. No, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go to a cell group tonight or small group tonight. No, I'm not going to go to church. I just, I'm just going to stay home. I'm going to pray to God, and I'm going to, do you isolate when you need to fellowship? Raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you. Because this is a tactic that the enemy uses to cut you from the herd, pick you off. All right, you may lower them. Is the battle for your mind or your thoughts? Are you slowly being indoctrinated into the culture of Babylon rather than what the culture of the kingdom of God is? Is this where your battle is? Is this where you're, where you're fighting? Yes, yes, yes. Let's see. Has your witness been tamed by compromise? Do you find yourself saying things you never thought you would say as a new believer? Do you find yourself going places, listening to lyrics that you know you shouldn't be listening to? Do you find yourself being drawn to pornography? Do you find yourself being drawn to violence and mayhem? Compromise. Thank you. Are you living the last one? Are you living out somebody else's expectation for you? You're living out a false identity. Have you forgotten what God says about you? And are you believing the lie that was spoken over you one weekend? One semester, one bad choice. That is, raise your hand. We're going we're gonna to be praying for you. You have my word. We're going to be praying for you this week because we want more. And we want to position ourselves to receive more.